You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution, exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible. Welcome to the new episode of Tech Take, where we take big bits and we make them into palatable bites. I'm Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee, co-host of the podcast, and I'm really excited about today's episode. Let me start with some background. Passed in 2021, we've got the Infrastructure Investment Bill and American Jobs Act, known as the IIJA, which is dedicating $65 billion for broadband funding and closing the digital divide. These monies, which are currently being disseminated and distributed, are being provided to states, localities, and tribal communities who will determine how to allocate the funding locally around the statutory and aspirational goals. But there's one thing that we have to pay attention to, and that is closing the rural broadband divide. Getting access to people with topographical challenges and folks that are geographically and socially isolated, it's a difficult task. I've been there two years before the pandemic as my book is almost out, I promise. I went to several rural communities and got to see for myself not just what lack of broadband does to families and households and communities, but what poverty does when you live in isolated communities where the closest store or hospital is more than a car ride away. Friends, We're gonna talk about rural broadband today. It's a major component of the IIJA and it's an area that if we don't get this right, we will pillage the opportunity to connect everyone in the United States to universal broadband. So I'm excited about this conversation and I'm equally excited about announcement I'm gonna talk about during this conversation, which is Brookings new rural broadband equity project. But first, let me introduce my guest. I am joined by the Honorable Sochil Torres-Small, who is the USDA's Undersecretary for Rural Development. In this role, she champions rural people by helping small towns access the funding they need to make their communities more livable through infrastructure improvements, affordable housing, and modernizing essential facilities like schools, hospitals, healthcare centers, and public safety stations. During her leadership, USDAR Rural Development secured $2 billion to support rural high-speed internet through the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, or the IIJA. I'm excited to have you, Undersecretary. Thank you for joining me for this conversation. Oh, Dr. Turner-Lee, it is such a joy. Thank you so much for having me. I have been wanting to get you on for quite a while, so I'm going to start by saying I'm a huge fangirl. And I'm even more of a fangirl because I heard that you went around the country this past summer and really went to visit many communities. But let's start with you first, right? So people know that this is really part of your DNA. You grew up in rural New Mexico. Talk to me and talk to our listeners on how that impacted your motivation to make sure that rural communities are connected. Well, so I grew up in New Mexico and then spent a lot of time in rural places across New Mexico and Colorado. I am from the Mesilla Valley. So if you know green chili, then you know of my home. 
my grandparents were farm workers and they immigrated by picking cotton to the United States and to the Mesilla Valley. And that experience of opportunity in rural places was always something I grew up knowing. And so it gave me this feeling that we've got to make sure that everyone has those kinds of opportunities, no matter where you live. So later I had the chance to get to represent my home in the United States Congress. And uh, growing up in Southern New Mexico in a county of persistent poverty, I saw firsthand that divide between people who have access to things and people who've been left behind. And so often that divide happened along rural lines, you know, where you didn't have good drainage systems and it was always flooding, or if you didn't have clean water, and if you didn't have high-speed internet. So now getting to work as Undersecretary for Rural Development, I'm really grateful to get to work in places, in rural places all across the country, to make sure that no matter where you live, you have access to high-speed internet. I'm so glad that you can take those personal experiences, right, and factor that into your public service. You don't know how important that is because we have so many people working on policy issues sometimes who are divorced from the lived experiences of communities, which makes me think about this recent tour you took to a number of rural communities this past month. How has that trip informed your understanding of the current state of broadband access across the country? Mm. If you know a rural place, you know one rural place. And something that I think gets ignored often when we talk about rural America is it's a lot of different places, a lot of unique, diverse spaces. And there's a lot of common challenges, but there's also unique challenges or specific needs or specific opportunities that come depending on where you are. And that's certainly what I've seen when it comes to high-speed internet. One of my first visits was in the Catskills in New York. And man, they had so much state involvement. They had identified where all of those last miles were and the places they needed to reach. And it was integrated into an economic development plan. And that was really exciting to be a part of. But it contrasted significantly with when I visited Stark County in Texas and the Colonia in, the, in that county. And there were just these great local organizers who were committed to supporting their communities and advocating for their needs. So they'd taken on everything from that flooding that I talked about in terms of the lack of drainage systems in Colonias, water quality. They'd been organizing and working with their community for a long time, but they wanted some advice on how to best advocate for high-speed internet because they were having trouble just knowing where to start in terms of how do you get the attention of a local telecom or an internet service provider to try to make the case that there are these homes that are being left out. So there's such a diversity of experience right now. And there are people who are trying to get access to high-speed internet, but just don't know what the next step needs to be. I love that because as I was mentioning to our listeners, we are soon putting out a rural broadband equity project, which really looks at how rural Americans, particularly those that come from diverse populations, are connected to the internet. And I think you're so right. People know that they have to have this, right? Even if you live in a community where there are more cows than people, people have heard me say this before, right? But they just don't know the pathway to how to fully connect the communication ecosystem in which they're living. I would be curious along their journey, if there were other stories of people that you came across that just made you have that aha moment of why your work is so important. 
Mm. Well, you talk about pathways. And one of the challenges is with high-speed internet, there isn't just one pathway. So sometimes it's a service provider that's operating across the country. Sometimes it's a rural electric co-op or a rural telephone co-op that has a relationship with the community. Sometimes it's a local private provider. And sometimes it's the county or the town that's taking this on. So there are a lot of different ways to do it. And one of the most inspiring for me was Alluvian Telecommunications, which is a wholly owned subsidiary of the Gila River Indian community. Mm. And they're out in Arizona. They realized they needed access to high-speed internet and they were having trouble getting attention of an internet service provider. So they decided to build that expertise in-house. And what that meant was now they're able, they have a skilled labor force, they are setting their own priorities, but they're also sharing that expertise. So they've been presenting at the National Tribal Telecommunications Association. They've been working, and we recently awarded a ReConnect Award to Alluvian to not just provide within the Gila River Indian community, but also serve places like Tona Odom in Arizona and other communities that didn't have access to high-speed internet. So they're having both a regional impact and an impact when it comes to building expertise in Indian country that's serving a whole lot of rural places across our country. Yeah, I would love to get into that because I think sometimes when people think rural, they don't think about tribal lands as part of this rural ecosystem. So let's actually get a little bit more into that later because I think that there's some really interesting experiences that we're not gaining by not being more inclusive, right, in our definitions there. When you think about your work at USCA and you think about these stakeholders that you came across, what do you see are the main challenges? I mean, outside of potentially the fact that it's pretty much universally known that there's not a lot of choice, but what are some of the challenges to getting rural broadband to rural communities with marginalized populations? Well, one of the biggest challenges that we see, of course, in high-speed internet, but in so much of the work that we do in rural development is, of course, having that infrastructure. What is the brick and mortar or the fiber and poles that it takes to get that service? But the first step to infrastructure is actually having a provider, having someone who is willing to own that brick and mortar and run that service. And that's part of why getting high-speed internet can be such a challenge, because you've got to support a local entity or an entity that's going to invest locally to provide and own that service. So that's one of the biggest challenges. But if you have the best, highest speed internet in a rural place, there are folks who still might not be able to get it because they have to be able to afford it. And that's why you need collaboration federally between rural development and the FCC and their affordable connectivity program. That's why we need to be making sure that as we fund these projects, we're also ensuring there's an affordable option at that last mile. I agree. I mean, we see lots of studies beginning with Pew, some research that I did years ago when I was at the Joint Center for Political and Economic Studies. Affordability is definitely a challenge. And the fortunate thing in the IIJA, we are seeing the Affordable Connectivity Program, which I think has to this date signed up millions of users who are actually accessing the discounted broadband service. So I love the fact that we've got to, as residents of the United States of America, realize that not everybody can afford this, right? Which I think is oftentimes seen as it's important, but it may not be prohibitive, right? When it comes Mm. to accessing online services. 
And that's one of the places where coordination is working really well. So in our last reconnect round, we added additional points. So your application for a grant or a loan or for a grant had additional points if you participated in the affordable connectivity program. Now we looked at almost every entity that applied for a grant signal used those points. And so we decided we were going to go ahead and require that for all grants for the next round. So the next round of reconnect Four, which was announced actually just yesterday, uh, (laughs) is it requires it. So that way, any project that we grant money for, they will have an affordable option through ACP. Now, just so that we ensure that everybody is following us, tell people more about what the reconnect program is. Oh, thank you so much. It's a wonderful program. So just a little bit of background on rural development. Rural development really exists because people realize that no matter where you live, you should have access to basic utilities. And that started with electricity. Now it's extended to high-speed internet. And the ReConnect program is our system of grants and loans that are provided to internet service providers, whether it's a local telco company or whether it's a rural electric co-op, to build that infrastructure to serve homes and schools and any address within a specific service area. One of the most unique things about it, when you look at the bipartisan infrastructure law, is that it's funds directly to providers. So it's not going through the state or another entity. It's going to the providers to specifically build out a specific area. And every address within that area has to be able to receive a connection. So it's a great program. And in the bipartisan infrastructure law, we were given $2 billion to distribute through this program. Wow. And a few grants got out. That's excellent. And the way that you've looked at it and repurposed that program, I think it's going to be so impactful. You know, I tell people, I never share my age, right? It was my birthday, the beginning of September. And I try not to tell Uh. people, but I just look at all of the support that is now available for high-speed broadband. And I have to tell you, it is tremendous and it's going to make a difference provided we do everything right and coordinate it and collaborate and all those good seeds. Well, happy birthday, Dr. Turner Lee. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, I I turned another age. (laughs) (laughs) My daughter was trying to figure it out. I said, hey, hey, hey. At the certain age, you just don't ask me. (laughs) (laughs) I talked a little bit about this equity project that we're doing at Brookings. And the reason I continue to talk about it is because I think it pulls into what you started with, which are like the different diversities that exist within rural America. So in our case, we're looking at Latinas and African-Americans that live in the rural South, particularly what was considered the Black Belt based on its cotton history of folks that basically went to those areas to migrate, found themselves in many cases in pernicious labor situations, and now still live out the remnants and consequences of being in the rural Black Belt. When you think about your work at USDA and you think about the stakeholders that you meet, I'm starting to see this intersectionality, right, between class and race. Would love to hear a little bit more from you, particularly we start going into the deep south, how these play out when it comes to broadband options, as well as just economic development options for these Mm. communities. Thank you so much, Dr. Turner Lee, for asking that question, because it is a reality in rural America. Rural America is incredibly diverse. And there are also parts of rural America that are the left behind of the left behind. 
whether it's looking at my history and my grandparents immigrating from Mexico or a recent trip that I was able to take in the Black Belt in Alabama and working on issues like wastewater because some communities have not just been underserved but disserved by the government. And that has generational impacts. So when we try to rebuild trust, that means going door to door, trying to get folks to sign up for a utility service, to agree to trust in the government again, that we can deliver on that promise. Now, when it comes to high-speed internet, we're trying to break that cycle. So that's why in this most recent round of ReConnect, we've worked to make sure that there are ways to access these funds, that it is a promise that is achievable. So that means things like not requiring a match for tribes or Alaska Native corporations, for colonias, or persistent poverty counties and socially vulnerable communities. It also means working to make sure that when we establish a service area, every house in that service area can be served, that no one's being missed because they don't know that that community is going to make good on the investment. The other thing that we're doing is trying to provide real technical assistance because these are complicated applications. Because when you spend that much time on an application, you're taking a chance. You're saying you want for this to work. And so it's our shot to make sure that we are working together to reach places that haven't been reached before. I'm so happy that you're rethinking how to package the ReConnect program because part of my research has also revealed that sometimes these are very burdensome, right? For small and medium-sized providers to have the type of compliance and it could be a deterrent for certain people who want to come in and build networks in those spaces. I'm so happy that we're finally, as a country, thinking about how to meet people where they are. You know what I mean? Because this is so important to our economy if we can get everybody connected. With that, I think you're also suggesting something that's so interesting, which is really going into communities with a hyper-local lens. How do you find that that really informs not only the policymaking that we do, but it also informs our ability just to be more effective in communities where we know we have spent a lot of money, <laughs> a lot of time, a lot of deliberation for decades and been unable to answer the questions of having really sustainable communications infrastructure. So just like, how do we get hyper-local? Like, why is that so important? <laughs> oh, I'm so glad you asked that because- If you know a rural place, you know one rural place. It's not just a big rural America, but there's actually just distinct places that make a home special. And if we want to do meaningful rural development, what that's going to take is recognizing what makes those places special. It's something rural development has been doing for a long time. We've got over 450 offices all across the country, which is pretty rare for federal government being in communities with whom we partner. We're doubling down on that with President Biden's uh, investment in the Rural Partners Network. So this is an effort to locate individual employees in specific communities, communities that have been identified because there is high social vulnerability, because they're in counties of persistent poverty, but also because there's a wealth of people in those communities who are committed to serving their homes. And by partnering with those people who are committed to serving their homes, we're able to better invest in their dreams 
their vision for their community. And that is what will best support people and allow them to thrive in the homes that they love. You know, I like that when I was going around the country for my book and I would find myself in rural communities. Now, look, for transparency, I grew up in New York. I was born in Queens General Hospital. (laughs) I used to go to the South during the summers and want to come home because there was no 7-Eleven nearby. That was me when I was growing up, when I would visit my relatives in North Carolina. But when I think about the communities that I visited, stories that you probably heard, day laborer, doesn't have sustainable internet is unable to find work because he just can't stay connected to the potential temporary agency. Mechanic who was able to get some internet before the pandemic, fortunately, where he was able to connect to the internet in ways that he was ordering tires more efficiently, right? Versus going through tons of books to find model numbers. Mm -hmm. Post the pandemic, I hear he's no longer in business. These are people's lives. And when I hear you speak, I know that you were inspired by individual people because at the end of the conversation on broadband, it's really about people at the front side and at the end side, right? Broadband is just the middle. It's just the glue that keeps our country together. Talk to us about some of those inspiring stories and people that you met and why people really matter in this going forward. It really is all about the people. When I was in Alaska recently, working on an investment in Southeastern Alaska, we were talking about this idea of community capacity and how do we create community capacity? And this woman stood up and she said, I'm sorry, no. The community capacity is here. Everyone from this community lives here because it's home, because we chose it. And we are your greatest asset. We are this place's greatest asset. And High-speed internet is that glue that allows kids from a home they love the choice to stay in the place that they love and build their future there. I was driving through South Carolina. We stopped at the side of the road next to a closed down supermarket. And this woman just raved about the internet she's now able to receive because of a reconnect investment. And she was able to come back home to continue doing her job online to raise her kids in the home she grew up. And she's been telling all our neighbors, you got to sign up, you got to sign up. That's the best example of the impact that it can have on one person to be able to live where they want to live to raise their kids where they can best grow up and thrive because they have access to high-speed internet. I I mentioned Alluvian, which is out in Arizona. I went to a school where some of the kids were going to be connected because of the investment. And they had lots of questions about the infrastructure. What does high-speed internet look like? What does the fiber, where does it go? How do you install it? What they understood without having to ask a question was, that they deserved to have that same high-speed internet as a kid in Phoenix. And the message that they did deserve that, it's going to mean so much as they grow up and as they are able to do their homework at home and as they're able to think about where they want to be because, not because of where there's the utilities that they need to live their life, but because of the home they want to choose and build. I call them the digitally invisible, right? They're folks that want to do the same thing as everybody else. And they should have the opportunity to do that at places where they live, where they love. You call it the pride of place, I've heard. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us what you mean by that pride of place. 
it's that choice. The biggest asset in rural places are people who are there because they love their home. And that's what creates the opportunities in small businesses to invest in whether it's a certain agriculture product, whether it's hatch green chili, or whether it's tourism. And being able to share your home with others, with other visitors, and doing it in the way that maintains the character of the place and that builds that sense of what makes their home special. But all of those opportunities require the ability to compete on the World Wide Web. Mm-hmm. And if you want to be a producer of content, you need not just internet, you need high speed internet, you need to be able to upload video, you need to be able to create and add to the internet, as opposed to simply downloading things. I was about to say amen, amen, and amen. <laughs> the secretary, you preaching over here. Listen, it is about moving people from consumers, producers, right? This is just not about getting more people online to do important things, but it's really about getting our folks connected in the workforce, in the entrepreneurial opportunities that exist when it comes to the direct and indirect benefits of an internet. I love it because listen, That story is not often told. And what I love about what you're talking about as well is it's not only going to take states and localities, right? But it's going to take anchor institutions, schools and libraries and Mm. perhaps churches and community centers to actually make this work. What did you find when you went across the country in terms of the roles of these local trusted institutions in helping people to navigate through these digital challenges? When you're in a rural place, the local institutions can surprise you. Sometimes it is a local telecom, right? They are so close and so embedded in a community that when the internet note goes down, the owner of the telecom has has a visitor knocking on their door saying, hey, what's going on, right? And that is a fundamental piece, having a service provider that is that responsive, that, that they care about it being a reliable service because they're relying on it too. But other examples of community institutions are, of course, churches and schools and health centers. And being able to connect to those places in a community to build interest and, frankly, to rebuild some of that trust we were talking about earlier so that people are willing to call up their provider and say, hey, tell me about the affordable connectivity program. I hear there's an affordable option here. To take that time that valuable time to invest in something, that requires a relationship of trust. And so working with community institutions can be crucial for that. So when you talk about the community anchor institutions and the community institutions, I did have a question on that. When we look at the Infrastructure Investment Act or the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill, we see anchor institutions are going to be last when it comes to priority of funding. Just a quick question, and we'll start wrapping up. Do you think we're going to miss that opportunity, particularly in rural communities, to invest in their local trusted institutions and partners? Oh, I would love to hear more from you about your concern there. I certainly don't want to assume what you're thinking here, but I do want to point to first, just in the reconnect funding, if you have a defined service area, every address in that defined service area has to have the option to connect. So whether it's a school or a church or a health clinic, they've got to have the option to connect. And so that's keeping those local institutions connected. Another piece of it is 
making sure that they're able to have the equipment necessary to have make that connection meaningful. And so while not in the bipartisan infrastructure law, recurring funding that we have, a window which will actually open up at the end of this year, is the distance learning telemedicine program. And that provides loans and grants to, to community institutions that want to provide internet services. So that would be another place where we'd love to collaborate with those institutions. It's so interesting because we're finding this out in our research too. During the pandemic, because people didn't have household broadband access, they often relied upon their town hall, right, in rural communities or that church or the firehouse, we found out in some instances, or a hotel for that matter. I can tell you when I visited Marion, Alabama, I had to stop at a hotel because I lost internet connectivity and the hotel had uh, Wi-Fi. And so the lady was able to direct me to the place that I was visiting. But I think it's worth exploring, right? How do we continue to embolden uh, our federal programs to understand the appendages of community where we're actually supporting the full infrastructure? Which leads me to this question too. GAO recently put out a report around the fact that there are a series of federal programs focused on broadband. And I'm curious, particularly as I hear you, I mean, like I said, I'm very excited to hear USDA, who's traditionally been involved with broadband efforts and communications efforts, really taking this on, right? Head on to figure out how this fits into the rural development space. Do you think that there's a need possibly undersecretary to consolidate or at least review these programs and make sure we're not duplicating efforts, but really that we're compounding them, right? So that we have a bigger footprint that we're hitting? Mm, That's a really fair question. And I'm going to answer it with the conversation we were just having about how do we engage anchor institutions. So another grant that we provide is Community Connect, which specifically funds community centers to help them expand high-speed internet service in rural areas as long as they have an open option, an option for free high-speed internet. So the reason why I think that answers the question of do we need to consolidate our programs is there are so many aspects of this challenge, right? We've got to have the infrastructure. We've got to have the affordability. We've got to support anchor institutions. We've got all this work to do. And every federal agency, plus the states, plus the tribes, plus all sorts of partners have relationships that can help us reach the hardest to reach places and people. And so instead of, reinventing the wheel in terms of who is going to be the one entity investing in high-speed internet. We've taken a different approach because we've realized we've got to act as quickly as possible. So what are the existing routes that we have? What are the existing programs that people are already used to that we can reshape to serve as many people in as many different ways as possible. I think that we can make that work as long as we coordinate. So I gave the example of the ACP, the Affordable Connectivity Program, and how we've included that in our grant application. But at every choice we make, we've got to be choosing to coordinate so that these programs fit together instead of compete against each other. It's so enlightening and so refreshing to hear you talk about this coordination because unfortunately I was around during the first top program, (laughs) the technology opportunities program back in the early 2000s. I was a recipient because I was doing nonprofit work. And then I survived the BTOP program under <laughs> President Obama. At that time, I was also a beneficiary because I was working for a nonprofit organization. 
And now fast forward, we see President Biden and Vice President Harris has really opened up the doors for an even greater investment in broadband, as well as National Treasury, as your agency, and several others who have now made broadband a priority. I guess I would close on this question, how will we know we're going to get this right? (laughs) Because, you know, it's almost like all of the odds have been reduced, and we now have this opportunity to make an impact in rural America, and more importantly, all across America. We're working together, we're just even greater than being apart, right? So just curious, like, how do you know we're going to be successful? Uh, And how do you know you're going to be successful as you continue to push forward what you're doing for rural development? I know it's a deep question. It's like my Oprah question. Sometimes I go there. (laughs) I get into these conversations so much because they're so near and dear to our our hearts, right? You and I care about this. You as a former representative and now in this role, you get it, right? Because you get people. So I had to ask the question. I'm sorry. (laughs) Well, I'll go go deep with you. I think it's the right question to ask. And for me, the answer is when a kid from rural Alabama can envision her future in her rural home and have the same opportunity because she has high-speed internet, because she can be a creator of content and contribute to the worldwide community from her home. And she doesn't have to make that choice. That's how we know. And we're still working on other utilities. Right now, whether it's Indian country or other rural places across our country that don't have access to running water or a safe way to flush their toilet. We haven't gotten there in multiple spaces and we're going to have to keep working to reach those hardest to reach places. And that reminds me of for transparency, we're dealing with what's happening in Jackson, Mississippi now Uh. with their water crisis. And I'm sure that's been on the plate of USDA as well, just thinking about these type of utility breakdowns. It makes me think about the fact that if we modernize our infrastructure, we could also make it smarter. So it's like we said, broadband may be part of the sandwich, but it's like the whole recipe to ensure that we have just smarter systems in both urban and rural America, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Whether it's disaster response and being able to upload video to identify smoke faster because of high speed internet or turn down or turn off electricity immediately in the midst of a storm. There's all sorts of ways that high speed internet helps solve other problems too. Wow. I have to tell you, thank you so much for coming on. This has been an absolutely fantastic conversation. I keep you up another hour. I think I say that to everybody, but this time I really mean it. Listen, (laughs) (laughs) there's a couple of things that I think I got out of this episode that are really important. One, in your position, in your role at USDA, you are really working to revise the ReConnect program. So it makes it an easier reach for the people who are interested in really engaging in rural development in a way that enhances our communications ecosystem. So where can they get more information about the ReConnect program and all the programs that you're working on at USDA? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that question. Of course. (laughs) I know there's there's somebody who's going to email me later and say, was there a reference? So the place to get started is www.rd.usda.gov. And you can find all sorts of resources from looking for a person to call the general field representative who covers your area to one of the recorded webcasts put on about how to apply for ReConnect. 
There's a lot of information there. And then looking for future webinars that might be available to get your sense of what's the next step when it comes to getting high-speed internet for your home. Perfect. And then the other thing I heard is, look, rural is a diverse group of people from tribal lands to black, to white, to different classes. And I love this whole concept. It's about the pride of place. And it's about moving people who want to live in rural communities, particularly since we've seen the great migration of blacks and Latinas to rural communities lately. But it's also our ability to make sure that people can produce in place, pride in place and production in place, right, is what I took out of this. Ah, Nicole, it's been such an honor and joy to talk with you. Thank you so much. No, thank you. And I want to say to all of the listeners, keep following the efforts of USDA. Keep following the work that we're doing at Brookings when it comes to rural broadband and closing the divide. We're really serious about enhancing these conversations. Undersecretary Torres Smalls, thank you so much for coming on. I cannot tell you how happy I am that you took it out of your busy schedule to be with us for our Tech Tech podcast. Thank you so much, Nicole. And for all of you that are listening, thank you for joining us and be on the lookout for our next episode of Tech Tank, where we take big bites and we make them into palatable bits, taking tech policy issues affecting the United States and the world and making it easy for you to digest. We want to say thank you for supporting the podcast and we look forward to have you listen to this episode and ones in the future. I'm Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Tech Tank, a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast and sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings. <laughs>